The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Okay, we are going to cover uh, the second of a three-part series that we started last week. Uh, you'll recall uh, two Wednesdays ago, we studied Psalm 74 and read it last week. And remember the the centerpiece of that was, Lord, how long? How long until you restore us? We were rightly punished. We were rightly disciplined. We don't see any prophets. There are no more miracles. And we just wait. And we're uh, ashamed. We're the, the mock mocking of our neighbors and enemies and, and and how long lord when will that when will that turn and we saw that in psalm 79 how long yahweh will you be angry forever will your jealousy burn like fire save us quickly and so that's the the post exilic or the exilic prayer is there's a recognition you recall from moses on frank mentioned that in his prayer from early on there was a recognition that they would be disciplined for their sin. They would go into exile, but that God would restore them one final time. We talked about how the latter prophets even uh, seconded that with Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel seconded that message. And, and that Daniel, that exile of all exiles, was reading Jeremiah and recognized that it was going to be a 70-year captivity and prayed for all of this completion that was read, that he read about in Moses, all of this bringing about of the final consummation and restoration of Israel. He prayed that God would, would bring that. And you recall, uh, God said and sent a messenger and said, it's not going to be 70 years for the final restoration. Sure enough, we're gonna, you're going to go back and the temple of the city will be rebuilt as Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel and others did. But that won't be the full consummation. There's yet 77s that you'll need to wait. And Malachi, remember, said the same thing. He said, yes, there was a day of the Lord that came with the Babylonians. But that was not the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is still what? Still future, right? It hasn't come yet. And so Psalm 74 is written and Psalm 79 is written. And the question is, how long? It's been 400 years. There's no prophets there's no miracles. We're just still this kind of tiny nation um, among other nations. And, and there's no obvious answer to that prayer of restoration, to that promise that God made through Moses and the latter prophets. But then John the Baptist came on the scene and had a message unlike any others. He was a man that they had not seen in centuries, a, a true prophet. And he was just a herald of someone even greater to come who did produce amazing miracles who was not just a prophet but the son of God and the Messiah that had been promised and it sure seemed like that was the time that was spoken of but in reality it was what Daniel did prophesy he was going to be cut off and um, it, the, the kingdom did not come the restoration did not come he was cut off he was crucified rose from the dead and ascended and then the apostles, the early apostles, Frank mentioned in Sunday school last week. I, I didn't even think about that when I was preparing last week. But Acts 1, they're asking, well, is now the time? Is now the time for all that to come? And their early preaching sure sounded like it. He said, hey, you see all this spirit being poured out? That's what was written about in the prophet Joel. And repent so that all the times of restoration can come. But though the spirit was poured out and though miracles continued and prophets continued, it wasn't the coming. It wasn't the return. It wasn't the promised restoration. And decades passed by and miracles began to wane and prophecy began to cease. And the question began to be raised again. Is it wrong for us to be expecting a restoration? Is it ever going to come? And have we missed it maybe even? Remember 2 Thessalonians. I think maybe the day of the Lord's already come. Or 2 Timothy. Maybe the resurrection's already taken place. Or the book of Hebrews, right? Maybe we should go back to Judaism because one thing we didn't mention before was that persecution was coming. So now we've got persecution with no evidence that anything is going to change or that no restoration or kingdom is coming. And so maybe we should just go back to Judaism. And so Hebrews was written to con combat that and the Gospel of John was written to encourage people to continue believing that, that this, even if they've defected, even if they've considered going back to Judaism, 
You can still be restored as Peter was. Even though Peter was crucified, this head of the apostles, God knew about that ahead of time. Even though John is aged and soon to die, it wasn't true that Jesus said he wasn't going to die. And so John wrote his gospel so that those would continue believing and not follow the example of Judas, who had turned away. But we said it's not just been decades since then. It's been millennia. It's been 2,000 years now. And the question is just as relevant now, more relevant even than in the post-exilic period. How long? Are we to expect a restoration? Is it possible there's not a kingdom, right, in the in the, the system we've heard of as amillennialism? There, there's no kingdom. Or maybe the kingdom is going to be brought by us. So we need to get busy. Maybe it's post-millennialism. Maybe the kingdom's already here, preterism. Maybe we shouldn't be waiting. And we said, hey, it's really easy for us to give up hope or to give up faith, especially as we look around and there are no miracles, there are no signs, there are no prophets that we see, and things keep getting, it seems, worse and worse. So what can we do? I mean, Peter said people were going to mock that things just continue on. And, and sure enough, that's not only easy for unbelievers to mock, it's easy for believers to lose hope. And we said at the very end of last week, what do we need to help us? Well, what we need is what John did for his first century audience. We need a recognition that God already had this planned and already stated it ahead of time. In fact, I read just in my own personal reading this week in Isaiah 48. This is, again, more written to the mockers. But again, it's not a, it's not a clean distinction. The mockers need to recognize God had all this planned, but so do believers so they can continue believing. But listen to Isaiah 48. I just happened to read this this week in my own personal reading. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel, and who came forth from the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of Yahweh and invoke the God of Israel. So these are believers, at least. They're folks that are calling upon God's name. But, into verse 48, verse 1, but not in truth or righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city. They lean on the God of Israel. Yahweh of hosts is his name. I declared the former things long ago, long ago, not just now. It's not like I realize it now and I'm saying it. Long ago I said these things were going to happen. They went forth from my mouth. I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted and they came to, came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew. Again, hopefully that doesn't describe us. Uh, it does describe all humans to some degree in our flesh, but hopefully we are growing and, and that wouldn't be an accurate representation of us. But nevertheless, because I know you're obstinate and your neck is iron sinew and your forehead bronze, therefore I declared them to you long ago. Before they took place, I proclaimed them to you. Again, in their case, so that they wouldn't follow idols, but maybe in our case, so that we wouldn't lose hope. So we wouldn't think maybe we shouldn't expect a restoration. And my claim from last week is, sure enough, these 2,000 years were foreknown by God and weren't just foreknown, they were foredeclared. They were written down. And they were written down specifically, I said, in Hosea 3. And we didn't get there, but we're going to read it now. So you can turn to Hosea 3. We're going to spend, unlike last week, where we spent zero time there, we're going to spend all our time in Hosea this week. But we're going to start by reading Hosea 3. Very short prophecy. Just five verses. Hosea 3. Then Yahweh said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as Yahweh loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I, Hosea speaking, so I bought her, Gomer, for myself for fifteen shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. And then I said, then Hosea I said to her, Gomer, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be toward you. Why did he do this? Because the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to Yahweh and to his goodness in the last days. Now, I said that uh, it was going to be the kind of prophecy that, like John's, was very clear, something we could stand on. And maybe to you, at least I would assume this is true. To you, that doesn't sound very clear. Like, Matt, maybe it should have read, 
hey, after Christ dies, there'll be 2,000 years, right? That would have been something you could have really stood on, right? And we'll get to that in just a second. That actually leads us to, you know, just a reminder of our plan for these three weeks. Uh, we're in the second of the Sundays, and we talked about how we're going to need to chase down a couple of clues. We'll get to that in just a second. But, but in Hosea 3, let me just at least state what we'll get to by the end of next week. When he says in verse 4, you're looking for that 2,000 years uh, prophecy. When he says in verse 4 that the sons of Israel will remain for many days, that's this time period that he's speaking of. And again, bear with me on clarity, but just know that that's the time period that we're talking about is those many days. And I, and I don't expect you to believe me, but I will hopefully show you that over the next week or two, and then you'll believe the evidence, I hope. Uh, and then afterward, when the sons of Israel return, that's uh, after the tribulation, when Israel turns back and they have uh, restored to goodness in the millennial kingdom in the last days. But again, we need something really clear, right? I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna remain faithful, or if you take John's audience, right, they're gonna have to stick through persecution in order to keep on believing. Like they needed something really clear, and, and John said, "I'll tell you." That's not what they said. That's not what Jesus said. He didn't say I wasn't going to die. And he told you all Peter was going to die. He even said how he was going to die. Like really clear, right? And so that's what we want here. But again, when I first read this and when you guys are hearing it now, I'm sure that's not your thought. It's not, well, that's really clear that he's talking about the current age. Uh, so, so tell me more. Well, let me, let me start by making my problem worse, not better. Okay, let me make my problem worse, not better. There are four different ways that people interpret this prophecy. So, I thought you said it was clear, Matt. Well, give me a moment. There are four different ways, four common interpretations. I'm going to share with you three of them, and then we're going to focus on two. So, let me start with the first of those that I'm going to share. And this is exactly opposite of what you're saying, Matt. It's not clear. In fact, it's so indeterminate, you can't tell, right? It's deliberately, they'll argue, some will argue, deliberately vague so that you can't know what time period it's talking about. In fact, if you focus on that, uh, you're missing the main point, which is a concentration on what's keeping uh, God and Israel apart, those things that are listed. Here's a, a quote here that I have. Hosea gives no timelines in this prophecy, and we don't know if it concerns the exile, or maybe some time after that. We're not going to spend a lot of time, we're not going to focus on this one. I'm, I'm hoping that as I show you and try to make this clear, that you'll see Hosea gives timelines, that that's exactly wrong, that there are very clear timelines that we can follow uh, to help us understand what Hosea was talking about, really what God was talking about through Hosea, because as we mentioned last week, the prophets didn't always know exactly what time frame they were talking about, and we are not smarter or more godly we just sit from a different perspective you could almost say we have an easier job because we have a lot more history behind us but i'm not going to agree with this interpretation timelines are given i think it's the point of the 12 even to tell when these things would take place so i don't agree with this and we won't spend a lot of time on it this next one is i think a, a good and reasonable interpretation even though i think it's wrong and ultimately, the answer here is when Hosea says they're going to be many days deprived of things, without king, without prince, without ephod, without sacred pillar, without household uh, idols, without ephod, he's talking about the exile. He's saying, hey, you know, you were in the land, you had these things, but for many days you're going to be kicked out of the land, and you're going to be in exile. And when he talks about in the last days them returning to the Lord in his goodness. And uh, let me back up for just a second. A couple of good arguments for this are Hosea wrote just before the exile. I mean, he wrote 50 years or so before the exile, so it would make sense that perhaps his words spoke of that coming exile route right after. And certainly they were without those things in the exile. They did not have king when they were out in Babylon or in Assyria. They didn't have princes, etc. They certainly didn't have sacrifice. So that's a good argument in, in, in one view here. And they would see, second, the latter days when they return, when Israel returns to, to David and to God and to the goodness of the Lord, 
they would say, hey, that's the New Testament era. That's the church age. That's our time period right now that we live in now. And their return to David, this is a, a prophecy of the church. This is a prophecy of the spiritual blessings that would come when a person turns to Christ. Let me read these for you. The last days have their ultimate fulfillment, they say, in the new covenant in Christ. Christ is David's son who rules his people as their head. His goodness, in this case, isn't agricultural prosperity or peace with their neighbors or any of those things that were mentioned in the latter prophets, right, when we read Ezekiel or Jeremiah and what was going to come in the new covenant. It's rather the goodness of the fruit of the Spirit. That's the the take on when these latter days are. So the, the many days they'd have to wait was the exile and those years after, and then at the coming of Christ, here's the last days. And again, you have apostles saying you're now in the last days, right? So there's another good argument for this position. You're now in the last days, and, and Israel turns to God, or the church, in our case, turns to God through the, His Son, Jesus, and we receive this spiritual blessing of fruit, of goodness, of those sorts of benefits, not necessarily the things that, if you read the Old Testament on their own, you'd say, no, it's talking about land and, and blessings in that sense. So, again, a really good view. Um, I think, given a certain hermeneutical framework, it stands. I mean, if you're willing to say that the New Testament comes in and sort of changes the way we think about the Old Testament prophecies, right, then you could you could make a good case for this for this interpretation. It's not the one I hold. Um, I will also just point out in the same way, I, I, won't, I won't say in the same way because Paul had really harsh words for some of those first century folks who were upsetting the faith of others, but similar to those, it would be an argument, hey, the kingdom's already come, the day's already come. Again, from preterism, which would be something that would take our ire because they'd say the resurrection's already happened, we're in the kingdom, and we would rightly say anathema to that, to something like amillennialism, postmillennialism, which are our brothers and sisters in Christ, but nevertheless are saying, hey, don't expect uh, a kingdom. Don't expect a, a turning of literal Israel on that. Um, that would fall into this interpretation. And again, a, a good interpretation given that hermeneutical framework. But is it correct is the question. And is it clear? I'm, I'm telling you by the end of next week, I'm going to tell you it's very clear. Right? So, but not yet. So interpretation three, the one that I take, is that when Hosea prophesied of many days of deprivation for Israel, that they were going to be many days Without those six things, king, prince, ephod, household idol, sacrifice, uh, the one I'm not thinking of, sacred pillar, um, that that is the current age and that God beforehand knew about this age and wrote it down. And when he says that in the last days they'll return, that's just as I mentioned, at the end of the tribulation, when they return to God, Israel returns as a nation to God and they indeed turn back to God and to David their king and they have this goodness and blessing in the millennial kingdom okay so hopefully now we're all kind of on the same page we understand the context of this passage we understand that I made a claim that you probably don't believe right now that this is very clear um, and I've told you a couple of these interpretations and it sure seems murky but what I want you to think about when I say that something is clear, I don't want you to confuse simplicity or ease with clarity. These are the prophets. We can't expect easy, right? The prophets are hard. And I also want to say there's different types of clarity, right? There's the sky is blue, right? We can all go out and see that in a millisecond and affirm that clear fact. And then there's the Sherlock Holmes type of clarity, right? Just as clear at the end of the show, right? Does everybody know who Sherlock Holmes is? In it's okay. uh, at the end of the show, it's just as clear. You say, aha, I should have I known that all along. But what were you lacking? You were lacking clues, right? If you had a couple clues, then the clarity was there. Before that, it sure seemed like an enigma. And my claim to you is that this is clear. It's just the Sherlock Holmes kind of clarity. And that we have to have a couple of clues to get there. But that at the end, we'll all say... Aha! And it will be clear. Elementary. So that's the that's my claim. I don't get a salary, so if I if I if I don't come good on my claim, there's I guess no 
Uh, nothing you can do to me. So that's pay for. You get what you pay for. All right, so we're going to look at two clues today that are going to at least uh, set the grounds for how I think we can solve this. And then next week we'll use the two clues. Uh, but this week I just want to talk through the two clues that are I think are going to help us make this very clear. Now, I showed you this last week. You remember this, and I used this as an analogy to help us think through kings, right? And I said, I might have started with this slide, and you guys would have been like, you're, you're just making that up, Matt. There's no such thing in Hebrew that sort of tells you that there's divisions. But so we started here so that I could trap you, as it were, into agreeing with me and said, hey, if you see these words, what happens? What, what's happening? And you said, a fairy tale is starting or a fairy tale is ending. I said, really? You knew that from just those words? And you said, yeah, yeah, I've read enough fairy tales that I know from just those words that a fairy tale is starting or ending. And I said, okay, all right, well, I've trapped you because the same thing happens in Hebrew. So I'm going to, is a trap, so be, be cautious here, but I'm going to start another analogy for you. Now, this is a simple recipe for making rice. Okay, on the left, You've got a recipe for making rice. It's not hard. Maybe, I don't know. I'm, I'm not much of a cook. Anyone in my family can tell you that. It may not be a good recipe. I don't know. I just pulled it from the <laughs> internet. But, right, it, it makes sense. And what I want to ask you is on the right are some pictures that are supposed to be corresponding to that recipe. And I want to ask you, did I get it right or not? No. Not no. Kathleen says no. Frank says no. Everybody, why not? What are some? Oh, Kevin gave me the X. No. <laughs> What did I do wrong? Yeah, the kind of. Well, what do you mean out of order? How do you know what order you're supposed to do them in? What's written on the left? Okay, tell me what's written on the left. What do you mean? First, first. What is next? What does next mean? After. Yeah. Right. Okay. All right. Is really? Nobody disagrees with me that you can use the words first and next, and you can, uh, you know, do it properly. That looks better, right? Okay. So you agree with me that the English language has the ability to make things clear in terms of what order they should be done in. And if I do it in the wrong order, you can cry foul and say that rice is not going to turn out well if you do it like that. Well, I'd like to say that Hebrew has the same thing. I'm going to use a fancy word. It's not important, but it's called the toll tense. Okay? doesn't matter. But it's used in narrative, and it's akin to the word next. Next 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 right I mean you can tell a story just like a recipe and say next happen this and next happen this and if you look at chapter 3 verse 3 the very beginning of that waiting period the many days you'll see that word in English if, at least in the New American Standard it says then I said to her right I don't know if all translations have that but that's that same verb tense in Hebrew and it means next the next thing that happened Okay, I mean, the, the translation then is helpful, honestly, right? And that's a clue. That's a clue. So if we're trying to figure out that time period and it starts with next, that means something came before it. So let's look back and let's find it. Again, I understand our Bibles, mine too, thankfully, are all written in English. But look back at verse 1, and hey, there's another one. It starts with next uh, as well. When it says, then Yahweh said to me, it even uses the word again, go again. So there's... Something here is telling us that we're in order. We're doing things in order. <clears throat> so we need to keep going back because we haven't gotten to first yet. So let's go back. But now we've got a problem because we ran into Hosea 2. And that verb tense is nowhere found there. There's not any narrative there. It's poetry. It would be like adding in the middle of our recipe for rice a song. <laughs> or a nursery rhyme or something like that. It would be odd, right? If I was telling you a recipe for cooking rice and I broke out in song in the middle of it, it'd be odd. And I will just go ahead and, and pause for a moment and say that may be a second clue that we want to, to follow in just a second. Why would you do that? But let's keep pressing back past Hosea 2 into Hosea 1. And hey, it was good. We've, we've discovered something else because if you look in verse 8, we're going to get one of those again. It says, Then or when she had weaned lo Ruamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. So we've picked up the storyline again. We're going backwards in our story, but we've picked it up again. And there it is in verse 6. There it is in verse 6. Then 
she conceived again. And there it is in verse 3. So he went. Unfortunately, the New American Standard doesn't translate it as then or next year, but he went and took Gomer. It would really be honestly poor reading if you translated it then or next every time. That's not how we tell stories, right? We don't say, I went to the store, next I did this, next I did this. You just tell your story, right? But it does. It is consecutive, and we see it even in verse 2. Next, God told Hosea to go take a wife of harlotry, and sure enough, the Hebrew equivalent of first that starts this sequence is found in, in verse 1. It would be like saying, again, we don't always translate it like this because it's no fun to read, but it would be like saying, first, the word of the Lord came to Hosea. Next, he said to Hosea, take a wife. Next, Hosea took a wife. Next, he had a son. Next, he had a daughter. Next, he had a son. Next, he said, go and love your wife again. Next, he said, wait for many days. So let me set this next to our our rice recipe just to make the point very clear. And this is a uh, you know this is essentially what I'm saying, right? And you may say, brilliant, Matt, brilliant. You've just proved that in a simple narrative, things happen in sequence. Wow, I'm really really impressed with your detective <laughs> skills. It's not any more profound than saying first you met Donna, next you married Donna. Next, Hannah was born. Next, Susanna. Next, Will. I'm like, what is profound about that? I thought we were looking for clues here that would help us understand the time period indicated by the many and last days in Hosea 3. So how is this helpful at all? How is this helpful whatsoever? Well, it allows me to make a picture like we did with the rice, right? I can put a sequence of things in order and indicating that they happen in order. There I have those things that previous I had written in textual, and now I've got them in picture to just make them easy for us to grasp. There's the story of Hosea 1 and 3 in order, and we all understand that they happen in order. They happen in sequence, right? You can't put, can't, you can't rinse the rice last. You have to do that first, right? And these things happened in order. And here's the point. Each aspect of Hosea's story with Gomer has a prophetical significance, every one of them. Right? Let's just take the first one. I want you to go enter into covenant with a wife of harlotry. Is he just? Does that have any significance at all with God and Israel? Of course it does. What was the significance? I entered into covenant with you, you faithless nation, but I entered into covenant with you and loved you. And each of these, we're going to see, has a significance. And not only is Hosea's story need to be ordered, right? It does. You can't. Go love her again. If you haven't loved her the first time, you can't rinse the rice at the very end. right? They've got to go in order. Similarly, all of these prophetical things that are indicated by Hosea's relationship with Gomer also are in order. Right? Let me put that up there. So in the same way that Hosea's narrative with Gomer is sequenced, first this, next this, next this, next this, no one would argue with that, but in the same way what those actions indicate between God and Israel are also sequential. Okay, well that's a clue. I don't know what we'll use it for yet, but it's a clue. It would, uh, it will help us, I think, next week when we use that clue to answer the question, hey, between those two really good interpretations, both, depending on your hermeneutical framework, both could be valid, are one of them not possible based perhaps on this ordering? But before we track down that clue, and again, we're not going to do it till next week, we had one other clue that we wanted to track down, and it was why in the world is there this poetical account in the middle of a narrative? I mean, the last time you were on BettyCrocker.com and reading through how to make ranger cookies, were the lips, list of steps interrupted by a poem? Unless it was an ad or something like that, maybe, as you're scrolling down. Why is this? Why did Hosea do that? And there is a really good reason for it, I think. It's just really hard to explain. I actually thought about only using the first clue because that's enough, I think. But this is a, together, I think it's an even stronger case. So I'm going to try. I've never taught this before. And we're going to go further on Wednesday night. But I thought I would do my best and, and see if I could try to explain how I think, why I think Hosea 2 is there and how I think it helps even further in answering 
when are the many days of Hosea 3 that Israel's without all those things? And when are the last days that she returns? Is it the exile in the church age, as some of our friends would say? Or is it the church age is the many days, and the last days is the tribulation and then the kingdom? How can we figure out? Well, I think the first clue will help us, but I think the second clue will help us as well. So let me try. Again, forgive me if this doesn't work. I've never tried to teach this before. I want to start by reading Hosea 2, 2 through 5. And again, Hosea 2 is poetry. It's harder. Narrative is so much nicer. Like, I don't know about you, but when you're reading through the Old Testament and the prophets and you get to like Isaiah 36 to 39, you're just like, wow, thank you. I'm really glad to just be able to read some narrative because I don't know what was happening before and I don't know what's happening after. And Hosea 2 is a little like that. It's just a little bit harder, but it's important. So Hosea 2, 2 through 5. He says, Contend with your mother, contend, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. I will also make her like a wilderness, make her like a desert land, and slay her with thirst. Also, I will have no compassion on her children because they are children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. There's two things I want you to note about that section first as we try to press our way into Hosea 2, which is not a welcoming chapter. First, think about some of the themes that I have written up there. There's a wife of harlotry. There's children of harlotry. There's the word to commit harlotry. There's husband, wife, mother, children, conceive, bear. There's talk of a land. Is there anything in Hosea 1 or 3 that uses those same words, those same terms, those same same ideas? And there is, if you look at the very beginning of Hosea 1, you've got all those same terms clustered. You've got all those same ideas. You've got a wife of harlotry that Hosea is going to take. You have the idea of having children of harlotry. You have the land committing harlotry, where that same word is used again. And it at least makes a detective, a detective of the scripture, say, that's interesting. That's interesting. I wonder if there's something there. And then next, I want you to notice, it won't make any sense why you notice it now, but it'll come later. I want you to notice how the section ends. I asked us to read verses 2 through 5 of chapter 2, and I just want you to note in passing that this section, what I'm calling a section at least, ends with a statement about gifts Gifts from a lover to another and knowledge between lovers, right? She said, I will go after my lovers who gave me bread and water, right? So there's this desire to, the mother is desirous of chasing after her lovers because gifts were given to her from her lovers. Okay, so what I have at the end of this is maybe some sort of connection with Hosea 1, 2 through 3, and a note the section ends with a statement about gifts and lovers. Kevin? Um, is Hosea 1, 2B through 3A talking about Gomer? It is, yes. When it talks about a wife of harlotry, he's talking about Gomer. Okay. That's right. Okay, now I'm going to claim that Hosea 2, 6 starts a new section. You see the word therefore. Now I want you to note a couple of additional things as we continue to try to figure out what Hosea 2 is all about. First, just kind of Look a little further down, and you'll notice there's a couple more therefores in verse 9 and verse 14. So maybe, let's take an initial theory and just say, hey, maybe maybe 2, 6 through 8 is a section, and then 2, 9 through 13, and 2, 14 through something. Maybe those three therefores are three different sections, right? Let's just, let's just start with that uh, theory for just a second. I also want you to note that at the end of each of these proposed sections, there's still a statement about gifts between lovers and knowing or not knowing the, what you should, knowing or not knowing who the real giver is, who the real person that they should be uh, 
you not united with? What real lover of their soul is the one they should be with? Look in verse 8 as we end that proposed first section. For she does not know it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Let's look at 2, 12 through 13. I'm going to destroy her vines and figs. Why? Those are the things of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. And I'll make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. I'll punish her for the days of Baal, when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so she forgot me, declares the Lord. And lastly, in verses 15 through 17, there's a statement again about what the true lover of their soul, the true lover of Israel's soul, God, is going to give to them, give vineyards. And and that day, they're not going to call God by the name of Bailey anymore. He's going to remove those names and they will be mentioned no more. So there'll be a true knowledge of who's really giving the gifts. Now the last thing I want you to note is if we go back to those three sections, I want you to just kind of take a second. It's 2, 6 through 8. It's 2, 9 through 13 and 2, 14 through 17. And I just want you to read them where you're sitting and, and just note in your mind whether what kind of description is there. Is it a severe judgment? Is it a is it a restoration? Is it a is it a, a mild judgment? What how would you describe those three sections? You don't have to say out loud. I just want to give you a chance because again I haven't even read this chapter yet, but just read two six through eight, two nine through thirteen, and two fourteen through seventeen. And just answer in your mind is what's being declared there. And I think you may agree that in 2, 6 through 8, I'd call that sort of a mild judgment, right? I mean, I'm going to hedge up her way with thorns. I'm going to build a wall so that she can't find her paths. It's like a little bit of discipline, right? It's like I'm putting you in time out almost, as it were, right? You can't go out with your friends. You're not going to be able to see them. Right? And then how about 2, 9 through 13? Right? I'm going to uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. No one will rescue her out of my hand. I'll put an end to her gaiety and all her feasts. I'll destroy her vines and fig trees. They're going to make them a forest. Right? So this is not time out. This is a spanking. Right? As it were, to use an analogy. And then 2, 14 to 17, right, is, hey, I'm going to actually woo her back, right? Something's changing here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring her into the wilderness, speak kindly to her. I'm going to sing. She will sing, excuse me, like when she came out of Egypt, and things are going to be better, right? Okay, so again, what's the point? Well, we didn't read, and we will go in detail next Sunday, but I want you to just... Remember, in chapter 1, there were three children, right, as well. There were three children in chapter 1. There was Jezreel, there was Lo-Ruamah, and there was Lo-Ami. And Jezreel, if you read about Jezreel, and it's unfortunate, uh, we'll have to go into detail for me to make this case, it, it may sound a little bit severe. It says, I'm going to put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. At least that's how my translation reads. But for just a moment, give me the benefit of the doubt and ignore that statement for just a second. And it says, I'm going to punish the house of Jehu. I'm going to break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Right? So I don't hear anything there about exile. I don't hear anything there about destruction. I'm going to talk to you in detail next Sunday what I think that prophecy was. But it's not an end, despite what the end of verse 4 may sound like. It's not an end to the kingdom. It's not an end, and we'll, we'll get into that. But verse 6, with the second child, Lo-Ruamah, is very severe, right? I got no more compassion. I'm going to let them be destroyed. Now, I will save Judah, but Israel, who Hosea was speaking to, the northern kingdom, Israel is going to be destroyed. They're going to be uh, destroyed, and I'm not going to forgive them. And then, when you read about Lo-Ami, he's named that because I'm not your people, Uh I'm not your God, you're not my people. But Loami is the one where things change. And he says, 
but it is going to be that I'm going to bring you back. In the place where it was said, you're not my people, I'm going to say to you, you're sons of the living God. You'll be gathered and you will be go up from the land and great will be the day of Jezreel. So I'm going to, you know, argue tentatively with you for just a moment that it looks like the first section of chapter 2 ties to the beginning of chapter 1. It looks like those next three uh, sections tie to each of the children, right? So maybe we're telling the same story here, but not in narrative, but in prophecy or poetry, right? Let's see if I can maintain that. Let's keep reading in Hosea 2, in verse 18, which would be the next section if we ended in 17. And in 18, what is he doing? He's going to make a covenant with them, right? So he had a covenant with them, right? He, they were his people, but he broke it and said, you're not my people anymore. But in 18, after he's wooed them back, he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, a covenant for them, and I'm going to betroth you to me forever. So there's a betrothal going on, right? He's going to betroth them in righteousness and justice and in faithfulness, and then you'll know Yahweh. And with a betrothal often comes gifts, right? That's how it worked in those days. You would betroth someone, you would give gifts, you would uh, enter into a marriage agreement. It wasn't the marriage, right? I mean, the way it worked, at least the way I understand it, is you would enter into a betrothal, you'd give gifts, and then you would go back and prepare your home as the man and get ready, and then ultimately, sometime after that, there would be a big ceremony where the marriage would be consummated, and then uh, you would live together. But the marriage was really from the beginning, right? I mean, remember Joseph and Mary? He had to divorce her if he was going to go forward with that because they were betrothed, and that was not just an engagement. That was something more serious. But nevertheless, I went way too in more details than I needed. The fact is, here, there's a, there's a betrothal happening. There's a covenant. And I want you to think forward now to Hosea 3. And how does Hosea 3 start? Right? He tells Hosea to go again... And love a woman, right? Go again and, and take that woman back. And he gives some payment for her, right? So again, maybe this feels like a stretch, but, but again, when you're trying to solve mysteries as Sherlock Holmes, sometimes you have to look for some of these clues, right? And then lastly, the, the end of Hosea 2, right, from, from 21, and you'll notice that both 18 and 21 have in that day, it'll come about in that day, in 21, the last section of Hosea 2, it says, In that day I will respond, declares Yahweh, I will respond to the heavens, they will respond to the earth. The earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine, and to the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. And I will sow her, Israel, for myself in the land. I'll have compassion on her. I'll say to you who are not my people, you're my people. It sure seems like there's a returning to goodness, to the goodness that they weren't experiencing, and a returning of relationship, a full, as it were, consummation between Israel and God in Hosea 2, 21 to 23, which I'm going to argue corresponds to that second part of Hosea 3, where after, right, he betroths her to himself, after he goes back and takes Gomer again, then there's a period of time and ultimately a restoration to goodness in the last days. Now, Putting those clues together, I think we have a good framework to start thinking about Hosea 3 next week, right? I've already mentioned this slide that shows that those prophecies are going to be sequenced. Whatever they are, they're going to be sequenced in the same way that Hosea's marital life and family life was sequenced using those first, the next, the next, the next. That's what this slide indicates. But if you'll notice the little black text that was added, I'm going to also argue that we can get some help with each of these sections because Hosea 2 is telling the same story, just not via narrative. It's telling it prophetically. It's telling it via song, as it were. And each section of Hosea 2 corresponds to something in that narrative. And if we put those both together, we're going to be able to get, I think, to an aha moment of clarity around what is meant in Hosea 3, 4 to 5. When are the many days of Israel where they're without Prince, Ephod, King, Pillar, Household Gods, and I always get five out of six, and it's never the same one that I forget. Sacrifice, I think, was the last I didn't get this time. When are those many days of deprivation, and when are the last days? Using these clues, I think we can answer that with clarity. 
So as I end, I just wanna I wanna share three things. Uh, we're done, but I just wanna share three things. I wanna share uh, an attempted answer at why this Hosea two in the middle of the story. Um, I want to give some encouragement about how this passage is not just a mystery to unravel. It's not just an intellectual exercise. I want to share a little bit about how it's helped me as a husband. And then I want to just give an encouragement to stick with me one more week. So those three things. All right, so why? Why was there poetry there at the middle? Well, my best guess, Hosea doesn't say, so I'm just like you. I'm reading it trying to you know do the best I can. My best guess is if you notice, it happens really at that transition, right? So there's the story of marrying faithless Israel. There's the two children that represent both hedging up her way, as it were, slowing her down, punishment, and then ultimately destruction, right? And then you're not even my people, but I'm going to make you my people again, right? And my guess is in the same way that Paul, often in his later letters, or Peter, will get to a point and say, you know, just break out in praise through what we call doxology because he's been thinking about God's mysterious and wonderful ways with Israel in verses chapters 9 to 11 of Romans. And he ends Romans 11 with doxology. He can't help but praise God as he's contemplated these things. My argument is that's what's happening in Hosea 2, is he's telling this story, he gets to this point of transition, he sees God's wonderful grace, and he can't help but write a poem or a song about that as were. It would be as if you really loved salt, and you're in the middle of your rice, and you get to the step where you want to add salt, and you just sing a song about salt. I'll, I think, I don't remember this, maybe one of my kids can remind me, right? but I think I've sung songs when we've made omelets before. Yeah, okay, I'm getting, yeah, so it's not exactly the same, but it's this idea of you just have this you know, welling up in you and a narrative is not enough. You need to move out of narrative and you need to move into song. And I think maybe that's what's happening in Hosea 2. Okay, that's the first thing. Second, at the end of next week, after we finish all the sort of intellectual part or mind part, I, I want to share how Hosea 3 has helped me as a husband. Um, so I do want everyone, and this will be my final encouragement in just a second, I hope everyone remains engaged and understands the, the timing of what we're teaching here and the, you know, that there is a timeline and that you can get some clarity on that. And it's helpful to remain faithful and understand what God is doing. But I do want you to know that it also, as we look at God's character here, can help you personally in the nitty-gritty as well as you think about, or at least I'll say it's helped me in the nitty-gritty as you think about life with a spouse or future life with a spouse, perhaps if you're not married. Okay, and lastly, sec, uh, I have second, third and last, uh, it is hard work and it is um, you know, difficult to, to try and figure these things out, but I do want you to be encouraged. I want you to stick with it because I think it can lead you to a Sherlock Holmes type of clarity, which can be really good, which can be really something firm to stand on. Um, even though at first blush, it feels like we're all looking at each other as hopeless as the next person trying to figure out which of these interpretations could be right. And so it is hard work, but the prophecies, the prophets are hard, um, and it takes a little bit different of an approach. You can't, um, you have to approach them with some rigor. So I just want to encourage you to stick with it um, and know that in the same way that when we studied Kings and I said, hey, do you have to know that Esther is written as a chiasm to appreciate it? No. Do you need to read Hebrew to be a good student of the scriptures? No. Are English interpretations, uh, translations good? Yes. If we read the word of God ourselves in English, will we get benefit? Yes. Okay, so yes, all those things are true. I don't want anyone to be discouraged and say, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to come to those things. When I read it, I don't see that. And you may even come to the end and say, even after you said it, Matt, I don't see it. And that's okay. But I do want to encourage us that it is hard work. And it's what we ask our teachers to do and what I would encourage you in your life to hold your teachers accountable to do because you've got to work at it. These are not easy things. So stick with us and hopefully it will provide firm ground uh, for us to stand on. And if nothing else, a good look at what God does and how he acts that will help us as we imitate him in our own lives in the nitty-gritty.
So let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed for fellowship after a song. Lord, we do thank you for your word, and we recognize that in so many ways it's, I want to use the word deceitful, I don't mean that, uh, it's, um, it's not what it appears, it seems like a seed, it seems like a, really a nothing as it were, uh, just a dull, bland nothing that's sitting on the desk, but it is like a seed, it, it's got power in it, and if you plant it, and you understand it, and your spirit waters it as it were, it grows into oaks. And that's what your word is. And your word also, as Frank has taught us, is not always straightforward. There are parables. There are things that were meant to even hide truth. God, there are prophecies that even the people who wrote them didn't fully understand them. And there are certainly things, Father, that even today we look at and are perplexed and don't fully understand. And yet you have given us many revealed things. And you've given us, Father, a different perspective even at this late, we believe, at least late, time in the history of your redemption and from this vantage point father we see uh, that you have had all this planned we see that you are in control that nothing either from judas's betrayal or peter's death or two thousand years of waiting without profit or miracle uh, or at least without profit and miracle worker uh, father that we don't need to lose hope we don't need to mock we don't need to give up we don't need to think that we've missed it we don't need to think anything other than you are being patient you are waiting for all those to come to faith that you've called and that sure as day sure as the the sun comes up and the moon comes up that you're going to restore israel you're going to restore israel she's going to turn to you in her land and you're going to bring about a thousand year amazing kingdom of which we'll be a part as believers uh, who have been raptured who have been brought to be with you and then returned with you to, to rule and reign, which is almost uh, strange to even say out loud, to even think and imagine. But you've said the world is ours and blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. And all these promises are more than we can even imagine. But Father, mostly we need to walk worthy because while these things are amazing to look at, we are, as we said earlier, prone to the gravity of sin and pride and failing and even temptations whether sexual or financial or many others that we need your grace to walk worthy and to stay faithful and we ask that you help us to do that in jesus name amen